إن الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا وسيئات أعمالنا من يهديه الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله أما بعد So in the last lesson then we were discussing regarding the weighing scale, the balance on the Day of Judgment. And the section we left off on was the topic regarding what actually goes into your good deeds and what goes into your bad deeds. So al-mas'ala al-khamisa ما الذي يدخل في الوزن من الأعمال What is it that goes in to the weighing of the deeds? Firstly, ما عمله الإنسان في حياته أو عمله في حياته واستمر ثوابه بعد مماته Obviously, all of the good deeds that a person did himself, then that will go into his balance of good deeds on that day. All of the good deeds that a person did himself, then that will obviously go into his balance of good deeds. That is the good deeds that the person did during his lifetime. And some of those deeds, some of them, their reward continues even after death. So for example, the sadaqah, jariyah, the ongoing charity, whereby the reward continues after your death. Similarly, Knowledge that you leave behind and the people they continue to benefit from it after your death. And similarly, the righteous child that makes dua for you after your death. So there are certain types of your actions that may continue to gain the reward even after your death. But otherwise, all of the deeds that you did during your lifetime, the good deeds, then they are in your balance of good deeds. Then also, there is another category or type of deeds that goes into your balance on that day. And what is that then? The good deeds we're talking about yet. If people slander you, or bite you. So after the death, your husband, so you, for example, you uh, you taught somebody something, and but we mentioned just now the knowledge that you leave behind. The rights you take back. So here. There are other types of good deeds 
that will go into your weighing scale on that day from what other people did for you. Is it possible for somebody to do good deeds on your behalf for you? Is it possible or not? It's possible for certain types of deeds. It is not possible for anything and everything. You cannot pray and then after your prayer get up and pray again and say this one's for such and such. You cannot pray on behalf of other people. There are certain types of actions you can't do on behalf of anybody else. But there are certain types of actions that you can do on behalf of other people. This is known as, in the books of Aqidah, etc., Al-Ihda. Basically meaning gifting your deeds or some deed or action on behalf of to someone else. So where does that work? From amongst the actions that you can do that in, firstly, charity. So you can give charity on behalf of somebody else. You can give charity on behalf of the deceased. <coughs> and that charity that you give, then there will be reward in that for the person that you are giving it on behalf of. And there will be rewards for you for doing that good action too. So charity by consensus of the scholars can be given on behalf of somebody else. Someone who's died now, your parents, your relatives, to give charity on their behalf is permissible. So then that would be a deed that somebody else did, but it will count on their weighing scale of good deeds on that day. Secondly, from the deeds that can be done on behalf of somebody else, is Hajj and Umrah. Hajj and Umrah. That can be done on behalf of somebody else too. And that is established in the Sunnah. That it can be done on behalf of somebody else. وَهَذَا ثَابِتٌ بِالسُنَّةِ فَفِي حَدِيثِ ابْنِ عَبَّاسِ أَنَّ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمْ سَمِعَ رَجُلًا يَقُولُ لَبَّيْكَ عَنْ شُبْرُمَةِ In the hadith of Ibn Abbas, رضي الله عنهما, that the messenger of Allah Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam heard a man saying Labbaik for Shubruma. Labbaik an Shubruma. That he was saying Labbaik on behalf of somebody else. I.e., he was doing that Hajj on behalf of somebody else, a man by the name of Shubruma. So the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Who is Subruma? Who is this that you are saying, Labbaik on behalf of this Subruma? Who is he? قَالْ أَخٌ لِي أَوْ قَرِيبٌ لِي 
He said, he is a brother of mine. Or in one of the narrations, a relative of mine. قال, so the Prophet ﷺ said to him, Have you done hajj for yourself yet? Have you done hajj for yourself, your own hajj? قَالَ لَا The man said no. He hadn't done his own hajj yet. قَالْ حُجَّ عَنْ نَفْسِكَ ثُمَّ حُجَّ عَنْ شِبْرُمَ So the Prophet ﷺ told him, make hajj for yourself, your own hajj first. Then you can make hajj for shubruma. The point of the narration therefore, that it is permissible to do hajj on behalf of somebody else with the condition that you've done your own hajj first. You've done your own hajj first, the obligation upon you. Then after that, another time you return another year, it is permissible to do hajj on behalf of somebody else. And there are other narrations about that too. Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah, rahimahullah ta'ala mentioned that there is consensus <coughs> upon that point too. There is consensus that it is permissible to do hajj on behalf of somebody else. Of course, there are conditions and principles to understand in that when and who for the circumstances are explained in the books of fiqh. But here simply to highlight that can you do hajj on behalf of a deceased individual? Then overall, yes, that is something that can be done and that deceased individual would receive the reward for that. And you would receive the reward for doing that action too, of performing the actual hajj physically too. Also, what else? Charity, hajj, umrah, what else can be done on behalf of the deceased? But that's their vow. It's not technically an action somebody else has done for them. They vowed it themselves. Yes, you can complete their vows. But the origin of that worship started from them. What about some actions first that are independent? You're going to do them on behalf of that person from the scenario and the situation the way it is. Dua generally yes, but a third category something else here. Sacrifice. What about fasting? Fasting. Is it permissible to fast on behalf of somebody else, on behalf of somebody who's died? All of this discussion right now, it's about people who have died. Can you do these actions for people who have died? <coughs> so can you fast on behalf of somebody who has died? No. Yes? No. Yes? No? 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 
Yes? Yes, no. What's the answer? What's the fatwa? It's like prayers that you say, but you're saying fasting is like prayer. It's an ibadah that you do yourself specifically and it can't be done on your behalf. That's one answer we have there. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. So you're saying you can fast on behalf of other people if it's a vow. But you can't fast on behalf of them for any other reason. If a person has days left to make up from Ramadan, like for example, in Ramadan a person went traveling for a week, so they missed the fasting or they were ill for a week and they missed the fasting. After Ramadan they became better, they were going to make them up, you have a, a year to make them up. But then they died. And they never made up those five days. So you're saying you can make those five days up for them. <coughs> Anyone else? Them five days were due upon that person because he had collapsed. So there is a difference of opinion. There is a difference of opinion amongst the scholars as to whether you can fast on behalf of the deceased or not. There is a difference of opinion. Two opinions. One opinion states, in a nutshell, that yes, it is permissible to fast on behalf of somebody who has died, like in the example we just gave now, permissible to make up those five days for them because they died before they made them up. So those five days were upon them, but they died. So you can make them up on their behalf, and that's because of the hadith. مَنْ مَاتَ وَعَلَيْهِ صَامَ عَنْهُ وَلِيُّهُ Whomsoever dies and there is fasting due upon him, then his next of kin makes them up for him. Whoever dies and has fasting upon him, days that are due upon him, but he died, then the hadith says the next of kin makes up those days on his behalf. So one opinion of the scholars is, yes, it is permissible to fast on behalf of the deceased. Other opinion says, the other opinion says, that it is not permissible to fast on behalf of the deceased, except if it was in the situation of a fast which is not obligated in the default position of the sharia. Some fasts are obligatory by default. Some fasts are obligatory, but not by default. Which fasts are obligatory by default? In the Sharia, you have to fast those fasts. That is, Ramadan. But then there are fasts that are obligatory, wajib, but not in the Sharia by default. 
How can they be obligatory then? That's obligatory by the Sharia then. You should have stick to your first answer. You've been saying it. The vows. If you make a vow, before you make the vow, was it obligatory what vow you're making, whatever you're saying you're going to do, was it obligatory before you made the vow? Like for example, somebody says he vows next month he's going to fast one week out of the month. Next month in the Sharia, is there an obligation, a wajib to fast one week out of next month coming up? Obligation is there? Yes? No, there is no obligation. Next month, if somebody didn't fast a single day, any sin? No. So there is no obligatory fasting next month. Next month is not Ramadan. We're months away from Ramadan yet. So next month, by default in the Sharia, in the basis of the Sharia, by default, there's no obligation to fast. But if somebody makes a vow that next month they are going to fast five days, now all of a sudden for that person it has become obligatory to fast those five days because he's vowed it. So you see how those fasts have become obligatory now. But they were not obligatory by default. Whereas Ramadan, whether you vow or don't vow, irrelevant. Ramadan is obligatory by default. So the scholars say, fasts which are obligatory by default, like Ramadan, or days that you're making up from Ramadan, those default days cannot be done by anybody else on behalf of somebody else. Default Sharia fasting cannot be done by others on behalf of others. But fasting which is obligatory but not by default at the beginning, those types can be done by someone on behalf of someone else. So if somebody now made that vow next month, they are going to fast five days. But then they died this month. Now they've died and they have an obligation upon their shoulders of five days of fasting that they vowed. Obligation upon them. They died without doing it. They died this month. The obligation is upon them. And if that's the case now, in that scenario... Somebody can come and fulfill that obligation that they didn't fulfill. And fast those days for them. And that is because there is a hadith which highlights exactly that point. And that hadith is what? The first hadith could be used as an evidence. Because that hadith said, "Man kana man mata wa alayhi sawm, sama anhu waliyo." Whoever dies and there is fasting upon him, then his next of kin fasts for him. You could interpret that as meaning, whomsoever dies and has fasting upon him that was not obligatory by default, then the next of kin fasts for him. But you have to interpret it like that. Is there a narration clearer 
That if you have the vowing or that type of fasting upon you that wasn't obligatory by default, but you made it obligatory through vowing, that you can definitely fast that on behalf of somebody else? So there is a narration, in one version it says it was a man, in another version it says it was a woman, that a companion came and asked the Prophet ﷺ that his mother or father died, and that they had fasting left to make up. Should I make them up for my parent? So the Prophet ﷺ said, if, your parent had a loan to pay off. Would you have taken care of that after their death? Would you have gone and taken care of it? The companion said, yes. I would have gone and taken care of whatever loan my parent had with people after they died. I would have settled it. So the Prophet ﷺ said, فَاللَّهُ أَحَقُّ أَنْ that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is more rightful, more deserving that you fulfill the loan to Him, or the debt, the debt to Allah. A person now died having made a vow, they are gonna fast, they are in debt for those days. So fulfill that debt on behalf of your parent and fast on their behalf. So there is a narration highlighting that. In one version of that narration, it mentions that this parent, the fasts that were due upon him or her, were fasts that they had bowed. So the narration is very specific on the vowing aspect. Hence, some of the scholars take that opinion. Uh, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah and ibn al-Qayyim, uh, they take that opinion that it's only the fasting of vowing i.e. the fasts that were not obligatory by default in the sharia. So that is our point number three, fasting. Yes, it can be done in line with that explanation we've just given. And some scholars, like we said, there is an opinion you can do the fasts on behalf of somebody even if they were default ones in the sharia. That is an opinion. But the other opinion uh, appears to have the specific ahadith highlighting it. So, مِمَّا يَنْتَفِعُ بِهِ الْمَيِّتْ قَضَاءُ الصَّيَامِ الْوَاجِبِ عَنْهُ فَفِي الصَّحِيحَيْنِ أَنَّ الرَّسُولَ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عِلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمَ قَالَ مَنْ مَاتَ وَعَلَيْهِ الصَّيَامِ صَامَ عَنْهُ وَلِيُّهُ أَمَّا نَعْمَ There's one thing left. We've discussed obligatory fasting, default obligatory fasting, or non-default obligatory fasting. One opinion saying all of those categories, you can do them on behalf of the deceased. Second opinion saying only the ones which were not obligatory by default. What about, forget those now, what about fasts that are not obligatory by default or non-default? What are they? The optional fasts, optional fasts aren't obligatory at all. Superrogatory fasting, Monday, Thursday, three days. Can you do that superrogatory, nafal, fasting on behalf of somebody? That's the only topic left here. No? No? 
Anybody else? If it was something that a person did continuously all the time, it was part of their routine, uh-huh. yes. So maybe you're saying if it was something of the routine of the person, you could carry it on. But then what if it was the routine of the person that he prayed five times a day? And it was his routine, he went and made hajj every year. You don't have to sell your house and everything. Anybody else? Any other answers? Sheikh America, any answer? What do you bring to us from the Atlantic? Pass? Anybody else? With regards to nafal fasting, nothing is mentioned in the sunnah. It's not something which is prescribed. There are no evidences indicating you can do that. And we know that the default principle when it comes to worship is that all worship is permissible or impermissible? Impermissible. Until you have an evidence indicating that is a proper and established worship. So with nafal fasting, doing them on behalf of people, no evidence to indicate that. So that is not something which is done. Now, those ones are the agreed charity, uh, hajj, umrah, fasting with that little difference in it. What about the rest of the types of things that the scholars often mention? Or it is discussed in the books, like reciting the Qur'an on behalf of the deceased, and gifting the reward for that person, or other actions like that. There is a detailed discussion amongst the scholars of the past regarding this topic. Ihda'u thawab as it's known as. Gifting the reward to somebody. What types of worship can you gift the reward for it to somebody else, to somebody who's died? But what appears to be the case, and what is uh, established by the scholars, is that recitation of the Qur'an, prayer, those types of things, you cannot do those on behalf of other people. Recitation of the Qur'an included, as many of the scholars have highlighted in their established position upon that. You don't recite the Qur'an and then say that the reward, I am gifting it to such and such who's passed away. And this is one of the biggest types of actions you see the people doing. Just the other day, yesterday, we were at the graveyard at the janazah of an individual. And there were chairs in the graveyard. Chairs. At first when I saw them, because there is a residential area and then a big wall, and then the graveyard begins. I thought maybe the chairs belong to those residents. Maybe they, they come out or they sit down or something like that. Then afterwards I was told these chairs, they are designated here. People have come and brought them and left them. Plastic chairs, you can leave them outside, garden chairs. And they come, people regularly come, sit down on the chairs next to the grave of their beloved one for hours and hours and recite the Qur'an. Recite the Qur'an at the grave of their beloved one. That's why these chairs have been left by the people. They come and sit down at the grave of their beloved one 
and for a whole day they might be there reciting the Qur'an. What is established from the scholars, mostly mentioned and with the evidences and what is correct inshaAllah ta'ala in this position is, that it's not permissible and that's not something which is established to recite the Qur'an and to gift the reward to the deceased or to pray on behalf of the deceased. That is not established. Um, also, so, so are they, are they sinful for doing that? it is incorrect to do that. If it is not established, then it's a bid'ah. If it is not established and there is no evidence to do so, there is no sunnah to do so, then these types of actions are impermissible in the religion. And it's like many of the things that you see at the graveyards. And it's a great shame that you go to the Muslim areas or the Muslim graveyards and you cannot distinguish them from the non-Muslim graveyards in terms of the decor, in terms of how they organize the headstones and the graves and the flowers and everything. From a distance, you would never be able to tell the difference between the Muslim and the non-Muslim graveyards with the, the beauty and the amount of money on the marble and the headstones and the, the tombs that they make. And from the mistakes that they fall into, believing that they are doing good for the deceased. For example, like we mentioned previously in one of the classes, the narration about the Prophet wasallam putting down some green leaves on top of the graves of an individual. And he said, I hope that as long as the leaves stay moist, then it will reduce the punishment upon these individuals. So now, and that's authentic. So now people, when they bury the deceased, they place leaves, lots of green leaves, big green leaves, and in one grave I saw that they had planted a huge plant with huge green leaves, maybe 80-90 centimeters per leaf. Huge leaves, a huge type of tree, believing that this will reduce their punishment. However, they misunderstand that narration was something specific to the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam. It is not something legislated for the ummah to do. If it was legislated, then the companions would have been the first of the people to be doing that. They would have done that. The salaf would have done that. But they did not. The sahaba did not. The salaf as a whole did not. Indicating that they understood this is not an action of the sunnah for all of us to implement and do, but rather it was something specific to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Also when it comes to this topic of gifting, gifting the reward of your deeds to others, then it is something which is outside of the norm. Normally, your actions of worship and your good deeds are for 
yourself, your prayer, your zakat, your hajj, you're doing this worship for yourself. So to do it for somebody else is outside of the norm. Hence the companions, they would ask the Prophet ﷺ regarding that and what was allowed and how to do it because it's not a default action. It's not something you can just open up and say, any action, any worship, do it on behalf of the deceased. Slaughtering somebody mentioned, especially when it comes to Eid al-Adha, then is it permissible to do a slaughtering in the name of somebody who's died? In the name of Allah, but slaughtering on the behalf of somebody who has died. Permissible or not? No? Yes? The scholars, they say, it is allowed if it is done within, incorporated into your normal intention anyway. So a person now, the head of the household, he's going to do the slaughtering this particular Eid al-Adha for himself and his family as is the sunnah. That's his intention. He is slaughtering for himself and his family, doing that sacrifice for his household, as is the sunnah. In his intention, on top of his household, which is the normal intention, he can intend and for my deceased parents too. In his normal intention for his household. But if somebody comes along and says, this year I'm going to do the sacrifice not for me or my household, purely with the intention of my parents, for them. That is not allowed. You cannot do it purely with the intention of the deceased, but you do it normal, with the intention for yourself, your family, your household, how you normally do it. And in that, you incorporate that also, my parents in this household intention as well. That is okay. But you cannot specify them alone with that action. Then, so that is two things we've mentioned so far that will go into your good deeds. Number one was, the good deeds that a person does for himself was category number one. All of the good deeds you did. Category two was the good deeds other people did on your behalf, and that was all the breakdown. Category three of the deeds that will come into your good side on that day, that is what people were mentioning before, and that is the mahalim, where on that day, you will receive the rights back from those who oppressed you. From those who oppressed you, then you receive your rights back on that day. And that's mentioned in the hadith of the Muflis. Man al-Muflis, yawm al-Qiyamah. Who is the bankrupt one on the day of judgment? The bankrupt one. Is the one it's mentioned in the hadith. He used to have lots of worship. Lots of worship, like mountains of worship. But he used to oppress this one and transgress against that one. Take the rights of this one, abuse that one, beat this one. So even though he had so much worship he'd been doing, 
On that day, all of those people, they will come back and take good deeds from him for their own scale of good deeds and place them in there. So the third category is the good deeds you will receive from others who had oppressed you. That is the three overall categories of what is placed into the scales of an individual on that day. Then after that is the topic regarding what actually happens in the weighing scale then, in terms of the balance. So now there are three possibilities that arise when that weighing is done in your scales, in the balance. Either your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds, or your bad deeds will outweigh your good deeds, or it may be that your bad deeds and your good deeds end up exactly Equal, possible. So the first scenario is where the good deeds outweigh the bad deeds. Rajhan al-Hasanat. Those whom their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds even by a single deed. Even if it be by a single deed. Their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, then they enter paradise. They are the successful who enter paradise without punishment. Without any prior punishment, they enter paradise. Those whose good deeds are heavier, than their evil deeds, even if it be by one deed only. And the evidences for that are many. 
So for example, in Al-Mu'minun 102, فَمَنْ ثَقُلَتْ مَوَازِينُهُ فَأُولَئِكَ هُمُ الْمُفْلِحُونَ Those whom their weighing scales are heavy with their good deeds, then they are the successful. مُفْلِحُونَ Successful. In another ayah, الْقَارِعَةِ فَأَمَّا مَنْ ثَقُلَتْ مَوَازِينُهُ فَهُوَ فِي عِيشَةِ الرَّاضِيَةِ Whomsoever their weighing scale is heavy, heavier, then they will be in the life of bliss. And there are many evidences like that indicating that those whose good deeds are heavier, then they are successful. They are those who enter paradise. هَلِ الْأَمَرْ كَذَلِكَ لَوْ كَانَ فِي الْكِفَّةِ الْأُخْرَى كَبَائِرُ What if though, a person has the weighing done and his good deeds are heavier than his evil deeds. His good deeds are heavier than his evil deeds. But he does have major sins on his evil deeds side. He has done some major sins. Kaba'ir. But overall, when it's all done, his good deeds overall outweigh the bad deeds, even though there are major sins in amongst those bad deeds. Overall, his good deeds were heavier. Is that person going to enter paradise? Or what do we say now? Is there a different situation now because he has major sins on that other side? So what about the retribution then? So no, this question first. The, the major sins on the other side, what are we going to say? So if, if he has, if somebody has wronged him, then he can take uh, Hassanah. No, all that's done. Everything is done. Your scale, your balance is being done now. Your good deeds have outweighed your bad deeds. Your good deeds are heavier. But you do have major sins in your bad side. Are we still saying you enter paradise directly? Or does something have to be done now because there are major sins on your bad side? Hasn't. If he's repented, it doesn't count. So he won't enter paradise directly, something maybe yes. has to be looked at. Yes. Because he has major sins on the evil side. Even if there are major sins on the bad side? Yes? You want to put your name to it? What's your name? You don't want to put your name to it, you should have. You should have put your name to it. That is correct. Even if there are major sins, if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, even if there are major sins, it is absolute you enter paradise. The only situation that is different is the situation of shirk. That's a different thing altogether. No shirk, but major sins. Other major sins, whatever those major sins may be, but his good deeds were greater overall. So in that case, paradise, and they say, هَذَا مَقْطُوعَ هَذَا هُوَ الْمَقْطُوعَ عِنْدَ أَهْلِ sunnah. There's not even a dispute about it or a debate about it. 
If your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, then you are from the successful. Some of the scholars though, or some of the people, they went to the position of, <coughs> or they took the position that in that case, the person is going to be under the Mashiach. However, that is not correct. That is not correct. What is correct here is that if your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, even if there be major sins on that bad deeds, then you are from the successful, your good deeds have outweighed them. Then also, another point to mention here, is that the people whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, we're still in this first category yet, those whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, they are going to be of different levels. Some people, their good deeds will outweigh their bad deeds by a huge amount. Other people, their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, but by that fine margin. So there will be a big difference in levels between the people whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. All of those people aren't going to be the same. Some people will have many, many more good deeds than their bad deeds. Outweighs it by a huge amount. Others outweighs their bad deeds, but only by a small margin. So there will be a difference, there will be tafawut, between those people whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. At the top end of that will be those who have the good deeds purely. They have the good deeds purely. Can there be categories of people who have only good deeds and no bad deeds? There can. The prophets and even you could say righteous other people. How so? Because when they commit sins, they repent and they realize and they seek forgiveness. So they die upon purity in the end. Whatever sins they did, they realized and they sought repentance before they died. And so, as we've mentioned before, they won't be accountable for those sins any longer. Hence, they have only good deeds. So prophets would certainly come into that category or others who fell into bad deeds but they repented and sought forgiveness for them. That is the highest level of course then. Highest level of the people whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. The second category though are those who have the evil deeds still present because they did them and did not obviously Repent from them, that's why they are still there. So they will have those evil deeds, but those will differ by a huge amount. Some people with many bad deeds, some people with less bad deeds. An issue here, and perhaps we'll leave it at this issue as your homework, The category we're talking about now is the first category where the people whose good deeds outweigh their bad deeds. That is generally two subcategories. 
One is the ones who repented from all of their errors and therefore they die upon just their good deeds like the prophets. The other category, their good deeds outweigh their bad deeds, but they do have bad deeds on that side. They died not having repented from certain sins. Can we say, when determining the levels in paradise, that those bad deeds will wipe out good deeds equivalent to them to end up with a final figure of good deeds. Meaning just for the sake of an example, only for the sake of an example, somebody has 10 good deeds and 8 bad deeds. So their final result is that they have 2 good deeds and therefore they get into a certain level of paradise. Another person has 10 good deeds and 2 bad deeds. Their final result is Eight good deeds, so they get into a higher level of paradise. Do we do that? Or do we say that? Do we say that the evil deeds will wipe out the relevant amount from the good side to leave you a final figure or not? It's not as simple as no. There's a few statements of the scholars. So, that is going to be your homework to have a look and to investigate that issue. Do the bad deeds on that day have an impact onto the good side in leveling it out and therefore leaving what you have left after the bad deeds have uh, uh, taken their equivalent amount from the good deeds and then whatever's left, that's how you determine your level in paradise. Can we say that or not? Is that what happens or not? That is going to be the homework for everybody to have a look at and inshallah We'll uh, start with that topic in the next section, in the next lecture, insha'Allah ta'ala. And there are uh, a few opinions of the scholars and explanations of the scholars regarding how that works. So we'll conclude upon that. There's a couple of minutes. Any questions or anything to add? Yeah, you said about the Umrah and Hajj for somebody else. Is that the Umrah connected to the Hajj or is that separate? As so many people, they go to Umrah themselves and then at the same time they do one for that's multiple issues in the same question. Doing Umrah on behalf of somebody else, yes, allowed. Doing it in the same trip is another debate and another discussion. Some of the scholars do not allow. And they say it is not from the Sunnah. That when you go to Umrah, that you do multiple Umrahs. Some people they go there to Umrah, like they might go to Mecca first, do an Umrah, then they go to Medina, then they come back and do another Umrah. Or even if they don't do that, they'll go out to Tan'im, Masjid Aisha, do Ihram, come back, do another Umrah, do an Umrah every day. For the seven days they're in Mecca. Can you do that? Many of the scholars say no. Many of the scholars have highlighted, this is not from the Sunnah, some of them even say it's a bid'ah. To go out to Tan'im, to put your Ihram and then come back in again. No, resident is different. The rulings for the people of Makkah is different. They're resident there, they go to a certain area, or from their homes, they can do the ihram for Hajj, Umrah, rulings are different. But here we're talking about somebody who travels to go there. When you travel to go there, some of the scholars say, it is one Umrah per travel. That you can't go there and then go out to Tan'im, put your ihram in again every day, do two Umrahs every day for the week that you're there, 15 Umrahs, mashallah. That is not from the Sunnah. Some of the scholars even say 
Had Imam Shafi'i and others, they mentioned, there should be at least enough time between the Umrahs that the blackness of your head comes back. When you shave your head, you see the whiteness, the bold skin. Then it takes a week or two for the blackness to appear again or for that hair to appear again. They say at least that period should be left before you do your next Umrah. Some other scholars give that type of explanation. So doing multiple Umrahs in the same trip is not something scholars advise or say is a sunnah. But just doing Umrah on behalf of somebody who died, that is permissible. And could you do Hajj on behalf of the Prophet or Sadaq or anything like that? Like any accepted These types, doing actions on behalf of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, there is more need for you, your family, your relatives, that you do this on their behalves. The people who want to do this themselves, they have so much shortcoming yet. But you want to do certain types of actions, which for the people they say, to show my love for the messenger. That is why, to show my love for the messenger, I'm going to do something on behalf of the messenger. But showing your love for Allah and the Messenger is through practicing the Qur'an and the Sunnah. in kuntum If you love Allah, then follow me. So do the Umrah, do the Qur'an, do the charity, do your prayers, do your zakat, do your hajj. That is what is required of you to show your love for Allah and the Messenger. And if you're going to do it on behalf of someone, then there will be members of your family who never did hajj. They were unable to do hajj and they died, they never did umrah. Because some of the scholars, they say, it is obligatory to do umrah once in your lifetime too. That is a very strong opinion, that it is obligatory to do one umrah in your lifetime too. Of course, when you go to hajj, you can do it then. If you do tamattu', then you got umrah and you got hajj. But that is uh, more likely what is needed by the people to uh, 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 fulfill the rights of your relatives, your parents, and those who have not done it, that is more likely, that is uh, needed for the people. Last one. When it comes to doing Not necessarily. Good deeds on behalf of somebody else, it's not only for the deceased. Our topic tonight was about the deceased. But generally, otherwise, it is possible to do it on behalf of other people's certain actions. So can you do hajj on behalf of somebody who's still alive? Yes, Yes, you can. Can you give charity on behalf of somebody who's alive? Possible you can give that intention that it is for such and such, especially in certain circumstances, the scholars mention it's a good thing to do. So it is possible, certain actions can be done on behalf of somebody even when they're alive. Well, that is another topic in discussion. This topic, known as Ihda'u Thawab, Lil Amwat in particular. Huge chapters in the books of Aqidah. But we'll round off on that then. The prayer is here. We'll carry on in two weeks' time, inshaAllah ta'ala.